Part three, chapter fifteen of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. At eight o'clock that morning, Kutuzov had ridden up toward the Pratzer, at the head of the fourth division, Milodradovich's, which was to take the place of the columns of Prashevsky and de Langeron, which were now on their way down into the valley. He greeted the men of the foremost regiment and gave the word of command, thereby signifying that he intended to lead that column in person. When he reached the village of Pritzen, he halted. Prince Andrei, forming one of his large staff, stood just behind him. Prince Andrei felt stirred and excited, and at the same time self-confident and calm, as is apt to be the case with a man at the arrival of the moment which he has been anxiously awaiting. He was firmly convinced that this day was to be his Toulon, or his bridge of Arcola. How it would come about he had not the faintest idea, but he was firmly convinced that it would be. The lay of the land and the position of our forces were well known to him, so far as they could be known to any one in our army. His own strategical plan, which now seemed to be doomed never to be carried into effect, had been forgotten. Having made himself master of Vyrothor's scheme, Prince Andrei wondered what possibilities might rise before him, and began to make new combinations according to which his presence of mind and firmness of might might be called into request. Toward the left, in the valley below, where the fog lay, could be heard the musket fires of the unseen opponents. There, so it seemed to Prince Andrei, the fighting would be hottest, there the obstacles would be met with, and there I shall be sent, he said to himself, with a brigade or division, and with the standard in my hand, I shall rush on and conquer everything before me. Prince Andrei could not look at the standards of the battalions passing before him without a thrill. As he looked at one, he kept saying to himself, Maybe that is the very standard that I shall seize when I lead the army to the front. The nocturnal fog remained on the heights only in the form of hoarfrost, which was rapidly changing into dew. In the hollows, however, it still spread out like milk-white sea. Nothing could be discerned in that fog toward the left, where our troops were descending, and where the musketry firing was heard. Over the heights stretched the clear, bright sky, and at the right hung the monstrous ball of the sun. Far away toward the front, on the other shore of the sea of fog, the wooded hills could be seen rising. There the enemy must be stationed, and there some object could be distinguished. At the right, the guards, with echoing tramp and rattling wheels, and occasionally the glint of bayonets, were passing down into the dominion of the fog. At the left, beyond the village, similar masses of cavalry were filing down and disappearing from view in the sea of fog. In front and behind, the infantry were debushing. The commander-in-chief stationed himself at the entrance of the village, and allowed the troops to file past him. Kutuzov that morning appeared fatigued and irritated. The infantry, filing by him, came to a halt without any orders, apparently because they had come in contact with some obstacle ahead of them. "'Go and tell them to form into battalions, and get outside the village,' said Kutuzov, to a general who came riding along. "'How is it, you do not understand, your excellency, my dear sir,' that it's impossible to open ranks so, along a village street, when we are moving against the enemy. "'I propose to form behind the village, your eminence,' replied the general. 
Kutuzov gave him a satirine smile. You'd be in a fine condition deploying your front in presence of the enemy. Very fine idea. The enemy are still a long way off, your eminence. According to the plan. The plan, cried Kutuzov bitterly. And who told you that? Be good enough to do as I bid you. I obey. Mon cher, whispered Nesvetsky to Prince Andrei, the old man is surly as a dog. An Austrian officer in a white uniform, with a green plume in his hat, galloped up to Kutuzov and asked him in the name of the emperor whether the fourth column were taking part in the action. Kutuzov, without answering him, turned around, and his glance fell accidentally on Prince Andrei, who was stationed near him. When he noticed Bolkonsky, the vicious and acrimonious expression of his face softened, as though to acknowledge that he was not to blame for what was taking place. And still without answering the Austrian adjutant, he turned to Bolkonsky and said in French, "'Go and see, my dear, if the third division has passed the village yet. Command them to halt and await my orders.' As soon as Prince Andrei started, he called back, "'And ask if the skirmishers are posted, and what they are doing.' "'What they are doing,' he repeated to himself, still paying no attention to the Austrian. Prince Andrei galloped off to execute this order. Outstripping the battalions, which were all the time pressing forward, he halted the third division, and convinced himself that no skirmishers had been thrown out in front of our columns. The general command in front of the foremost regiment was greatly amazed at the order from the commander-in-chief to throw out sharpshooters. The regimental commander was firmly assured in his own mind that other troops were in front of him, and that the enemy could not be less than ten verst distance. In reality, nothing could be discerned in front of them except waste ground which sloped down and was shrouded in fog. After giving him the commander-in-chief's orders to repair his negligence, Prince Andrei galloped back. Kutuzov was still in the same place, and with his fat body sitting in a dumpy position in the saddle, was yawning heavily with his eyes closed. The troops had not yet moved, but stood with grounded arms. "'Good, very good,' said he to Prince Andrei and turned to the general, who, holding his watch in his hand, said that it must be time to move, since all the columns had already gone down from the left wing. "'Time enough, Your Excellency,' said Kutuzov. "'We shall have time enough,' he repeated. At this time, behind Kutuzov, were heard the sounds of the regiments in the distance, cheering, and these voices quickly ran along the whole extent of the line of the Russian columns under march. It was evident that the one whom they greeted was approaching rapidly. When the soldiers of the regiment at whose head Kutuzov was stationed began to cheer, he rode a little to one side and glanced around with a frown. Along the road from Pratzen came what appeared to be a squadron of gay-colored horsemen. Two of them at a round gallop rode side by side ahead of the others. One was in a black uniform with a white plume on a chestnut horse groomed in the English style. The other in a white uniform on a coal-black steed. These were the two emperors with their suite. Kutuzov, with the affectation of the thorough soldier, found at his post, shouted, Smyrno, eyes front, to the soldiers halting near him, and saluting, rode toward the emperor. His whole figure and manner had suddenly undergone a change. He had assumed the mien of a subordinate, of a man ready to surrender his own will, with an affectation of deference which evidently was not pleasing to the emperor Alexander, he came to meet him and saluted him. This impression crossed the young and happy face of the emperor, 
and disappeared like the mist wreaths in the clear sky. After his indisposition, he was a trifle thinner that day than he had been on the fields of Olmutz, where Bakonsky had for the first time seen him abroad. There was the same enchanting union of majesty and sweetness in his beautiful grey eyes, and on his thin lips the same possibility of varied feelings, and the same predominating expression of beneficent, innocent youth. At the review at Olmutz, he had been more majestic. Here he was happier and more full of energy. His face was a trifle flushed after his gallop of three verse, and as he reined in his horse, he drew a long breath and glanced around into the faces of his suite, all young men like himself, and like himself all full of life. Zartoriski and Novosilstov, and Prince Volkonsky, and Stroganov, and many others, all richly dressed, jovial young men on handsome, well-groomed, fresh-looking, and slightly sweating horses, chatting and laughing together, formed a group behind the sovereign. The Emperor Franz, a florid young man with a long face, sat bolt upright in his saddle on his handsome black stallion, and slowly glanced around him with an anxious expression. He beckoned to one of his white uniformed aides and asked him some question. Probably he asked at what hour they had come, thought Prince Andrei, gazing at his old acquaintance with a smile which he could not repress at the thought of his audience. The emperor's suite was composed of young orderlies, Austrian and Russian, selected from the regiments of the guards and of the line. Grooms had brought with them handsome reserve horses in embroidered comparisons for the emperors. Just as when a fresh breeze from the fields breezed through an open window into a stuffy chamber, so these brilliant young men brought with them to Kutuzov's dispirited staff the sense of youth and energy and confidence in victory. "'Why don't you begin, Mikhail Larionovitch? impatiently demanded the Emperor Alexander, turning to Kutuzov, at the same time looking curiously toward the Emperor Franz. "'I was waiting, Your Majesty,' replied Kutuzov, deferentially bowing low. The Emperor leaned toward him, frowning slightly, and giving him to understand that he did not hear. "'I was waiting, Your Majesty,' repeated Kutuzov, and Prince Andrei noted that Kutuzov's upper lip curled unnaturally when he repeated the words— I was waiting. The columns have not all assembled, Your Majesty. The sovereign heard, but the answer evidently displeased him. He shrugged his drooping shoulders, glanced at Novosilstov, who was standing near him, and his glance seemed to imply a certain compassion for Kutuzov. We are not on the Empress's field, Mikhail Larionovitch, where the review is not begun until all the regiments are present, said the Emperor, again glancing at the Emperor Franz's eyes as if to ask him if he would not take part so that he might listen to what he might say. But the Emperor Franz, who was still gazing about, did not heed him. "'That's the very reason I do not begin, sire,' said Kutuzov, in a ringing voice, seeming to anticipate the possibility that the Emperor might not see fit to hear him, and again a peculiar look passed over his face. "'That's the very reason I do not begin, sire, because we are not on parade and not on the Empress's field,' he repeated." clearly and distinctly. The faces of all those composing the emperor's suite expressed annoyance and reproach, as they hastily exchanged glances on hearing these words. No matter if he is old, he ought not, he never ought to speak in that way, the faces seemed to say. However, if you give the order, your majesty, said Kutuzov, raising his head and again assuming that former tone of a general ready to listen to orders and to obey. He turned his horse, Beckoning to division commander Miloradovich, he gave him the order to attack. 
the troops were again set in motion and two battalions of the novgorodsky regiment and one battalion of the Esferian regiment filed forward past the emperor while this affairsen battalion was passing the florid miloradovitch without his cloak and with his uniform covered with orders and his hat decorated with an immense plume and set on one side with the point forward galloped forward and gallantly saluting reined in his horse in front of the sovereign Espogam, god be with you general exclaimed the emperor we will do our best sire replied the other cheerily nevertheless the gentlemen of the suite could not refrain from smiling contemptuously at the execrable way in which he pronounced his french miloradovitch turned his horse sharply round and remained a short distance behind the emperor this ferian boys inspired by the presence of their sovereign marched by the emperors and their suite with lively gallant strides keeping perfect time children cried miloradovitch in a loud self-confident and cheering voice evidently roused by the sounds of the firing the expectation of the battle and the sight of the Asferian boys who had been his comrades in the campaign with suvarov and were now briskly marching past the emperors and roused to such a pitch that he forgot that the sovereign was present children this is not the first village that you have had to take he cried do our best cried the soldiers the emperor's mare started at the unexpected shout this mare which the emperor had ridden before during other reviews in russia here on the battlefield of austerlitz carried her rider not noticing the captious thrusts of his left heel pricking up her ears at the sound of the musketry firing just as she did on the field of mars not realizing the significance of those re-echoing volleys nor of the neighborhood of the emperor franz's black stallion nor of what the man who was on that day sat upon her back said thought felt the sovereign with a smile turned to one of his immediate suite and pointing to the Asphyrian lads made some remark End of chapter fifteen